an Ilion Iliog, Agus Sisinta Conrad Shen, when Mechanava Saint Gurtahag Mansha. May I just say, dear friends, and uh, what a great pleasure it is to be here at the, the Royal Irish Academy again, and as I have just said, uh, to join in celebrating the, the all island character of this important, um, this important institution of scholarship, which has a very, very illustrious history. I must say as well, I'm honored by the presence of uh, members of the Diplomatic Corps, His Excellency, the Dean of the Diplomatic Corps, and colleagues from the Diplomatic Corps, but above all else by uh, the people of Poland who, and Polish people who are uh, gathered here. Uh, more very recently, I had an opportunity, I dropped in more or less on a seminar on uh, Maria Clementina uh, and uh, <clears throat> Look at these connections. We have many connections with Poland. Uh, of course, in 1960, uh, 2016, we were celebrating 40 years of diplomatic relations. But it goes much farther back than that. I mentioned Maria Clementina, of course, but of course, uh, her grandfather's doctor was uh, Dr. O'Connor from Irish Ireland. And there were many, many uh, uh, comings and goings in extraordinary times. So it's a pleasure to be here again at this particular occasion. I, I, I just want to say it's, uh, to have been asked to officially open the exhibition entitled mm -hmm. A Forgotten Polish Hero of the Great Irish Famine, Paul Estrzelewski, uh, 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 struggle for to save thousands, uh, is a great honour. And I want to do, I do join with others in congratulating uh, the organisers of this exhibition, uh, the Embassy in Pol of Poland in Dublin, and of course I've said our host that I've already referred to the Royal Irish Academy. But also I want to thank uh, Professor Peter Grave, Queen's University Belfast, and Professor Emily Mark Fitzgerald of University College Dublin, not only for their illuminating respect of research inputs, uh, but also for bringing me around the exhibition uh, and, and giving an opportunity of engaging with it. And I do uh, congratulate all those associated with the presentation, including Jerk Garland for her graphic design. Ireland and Poland have very much in common. Our shared history is enriched today by deep economic, cultural and personal ties. And I'm very conscious that tomorrow is Europe Day. And what better way to celebrate it than two countries coming together and expressing a commitment to honouring uh, what was a great humanitarian who belonged not merely to Poland, not just to Poland and to Ireland, but who belonged to the world. And his contribution is extensive. I want to say as President of Ireland, I just want to, as President of Ireland, as I have before, to acknowledge the contribution of the Polish people, to the Polish community in Ireland, our largest, and the contribution that you are making in the different aspects of society, and particularly as well to see so many young people who are in different levels of education. 
the men and women who have chosen to make Ireland their home and whom, may I acknowledge, are making such a, as I said, they're making a, vi a, a vital contribution to Ireland. And I mentioned what we have in common. We have a shared experience of being caught in the interstices of empires. Indeed, Irish people have changed uh, uh, sides in, in imperial contests with remarkable flexibility, including in the 18th century uh, that, I have been, that I have referred to already. We also share a painful history of migration, of involuntary migration, that provides a very strong, a, a striking commonality. For people like myself, when I was starting out as an academic, most of my, some of my most, the work that interested me most was in the topic of migration. And I remember in the end of the 1960s in the United States, the great classical work of the Polish peasant in uh, Europe and America of Thomas and Znaniecki, which remains one of the great, great studies for people who are interested in studying migration. I think as well, it is very important that we, we, we look at migration, and, but today we're recognising a very special friend of the Irish, Paul Edmund Stradlecki. Stradlecki is one of the great Polish humanitarians of the 19th century. And the exhibition that I have just looked at tells his story, both as an explorer and geologist by profession, but thanks to whose efforts, uh, perhaps as many as 200,000 children, were saved from starvation during the Great Irish Famine of the 19th century, the late 19th century. Being as he was the main agent for the British Relief Association, a charity established by a group of prominent philanthropists in 1847, a very significant year as state assistance uh, uh, towards the famine was, was being withdrawn. It was the largest private provider of relief during the Great Irish Famine and the Scottish Highland Potato Famine of the 1840s. Sometimes I think to myself that a comparison of those two histories of the 1840s should be something we should pay more, uh, to which we should pay more attention. Strzelecki developed a visionary and effective mode of assistance through feeding, by, feeding, by suggesting and administering indeed the feeding of starving children directly through the school system, extending daily food rations to school children across the most famine-stricken western part of Ireland, while also distributing clothing and promoting basic hygiene, including the use of rye bread. At its peak in 1848, Around 200,000 children from all denominations were being fed, many of whom would otherwise have perished from hunger and disease. I think it is on an occasion like today, when we're recalling the detail of his heroic work, and when we are, of course, formally marking the Pope by doing so, marking the Polish links to the relief of the Great Famine in Ireland, it is important uh, to recall to memory all those who suffered and perished during this most defining event in the making of contemporary Ireland, the catastrophe that was the famine of 1847-9. In terms of its human impact, we now recognise, as is true of all famines, it was ultimately political and economic in its origins. We are, as both citizens and scholars, morally challenged to reject any suggestion that its human toll was either unavoidable, inevitable, or indeed, as one paper put it, 
as an act of God. I think it's very interesting in relation to the historiography as how it is changing and evolving uh, in recent times. Uh, this redress is being made up, but I think to some extent the philosophical underpinnings of attitudes of the time, including the impact of utilitarianism, is something to which we could address, uh, I think, a great effort. By 1849, the Irish people were in the midst of apocalyptic conditions in the fourth year of famine, at a time when the responsibility for public action had in effect been abdicated by the British government and passed to the indebted Irish poor law unions. In this year, one of the first professors recruited to what was the newly established college in Cork, University College in Cork, was the distinguished mathematician George Boole. And I should say, as I'm in the, in the academy, there's great credit due to the University in Cork for hiring Boole for his sheer genius rather than his academic qualifications on paper, something from which people could learn, I think, at the present time. I think uh, he, uh, he described what he witnessed on his train journey, rail, rail journey from Dublin to Cork to his new position. He said, there is over the whole country an air of utter destitution and abandonment. And this was a theme that was recorded earlier in a number of accounts by European travellers, including the 1837 account of the Hungarian baron Josef Echevos. A decade before the arrival of Pedato Blight, the precarious position of a large swathe of the population was already a matter of public record. The script for the devastation that was to follow ten years later had, already, had largely been written. I sometimes think, too, of the philosophical underpinnings I mentioned earlier, about how even the most enlightened of scholars can come to hold positions in which they see people who are suffering as somehow or another lesser people. I think of David Hume writing in his History of Great Britain in 1767, the Irish from the beginning of time had been buried in the most profound barbarism and ignorance, and as they were never conquered or even invaded by the Romans, from whom all the Western world derives its civility, they continued in the most rude state of existence, and, uh, and were distinguished only by those vices to which human nature are not tamed by education, nor restrained by laws is ever subject. This is a particular interest in relation to the academy here, because it was really the purpose of that writing that I was to suggest that such people could never be the source of the oceanic sagas. By 1849, as I've said, that these travellers from, the, from Europe were noting the condition of the Irish people. And it is impossible, in my view, to adequately deal with their accounts and with the Great Famine without reference to the very much earlier plantations, dispossessions and exclusions that had created a particularly congested disposal of population on what were impossible holdings of land and indeed which were being held in surf-like conditions. We're not short of accounts, but George Cornwall Lewis's third report of the Irish Pool Inquiry Commissioners has an, an interesting account because it provides an insight into what insiders at the time admitted. And it is now uh, not so 
widely admitted is that it had been part of the British government's real intentions in relation to Ireland, which was earlier to clear the land of tenants and in doing so eliminate secret organisations and indeed the thinking that informed the establishment of workhouses is influenced by this. As a surviving people in appalling conditions, with an enforced migratory diaspora, Ireland and Irish people would become totally ch ch changed by the famine. I think in order to lighten what I have to say, which is very heavy, we were all delighted, I think, to see Liverpool make a great recovery <laughs> against and win 4 0 yesterday evening. But Liverpool has a particular significance in relation to it, in, rela in relation to Ireland. One gets an idea of what was happening in 1846, 286,000 Irish people arrived in Liverpool on top of an existing Irish community in Liverpool. But I think that in 1847 it would be 300,000. But in eight days after Christmas, between the 18th of January, 1847, and the 26th of January, 1847, 173,000 Irish people applied to be relieved in Liverpool. This was the, the many, of, of course, would of whom, in Irish, they would be referred to as people who were garbard, in other words, two boat people. Some would have hoped that having taken one boat to Liverpool, they would take a further boat to North America. I think the figure would have been somewhere, I, I, sometimes as I did in any work now, this would be around 30% would eventually make that journey, mostly through Canada. We are assisted with recent advances in new scholarship, such as University College Cork's magnificent Atlas of the Irish Famine, which contains so many new young scholars. And we're encouraged to buy new cultural endeavours, such as that which is represented here today, in which we are attempting to take into ourselves the depth of the complexity of the Great Famine, and thus feel able to confront the consequences of the tragic events which took place on our island 170 years ago. Our own past, the dynamics of our own history, and its relationship with our neighbours, the changes in social forces in our own country, and how it would in turn inform our politics, really cannot be understood without an attempted understanding of the Great Famine. We know that from 1840, the 1841 census, that some 40% of Irish families were recorded as living in nearly half a million of what were called bohans, a one-room mud hut, described in the census as fourth-class houses that were considered generally unfit for human habitation. The families who lived in a barn were drawn overwhelmingly from either the over three million landless agricultural labourers in Ireland at the time, or the nearly 1.5 million courtiers that were leasing tiny plots of land, often barely enough, as I have said, to keep their families alive. They liked the tenant categories just above them, and I could identify more than a dozen categories, had no security of tenure, but were frequently without the means of survival itself, and with nothing to sell, without the means to flee, and that is terribly important. You had to have something to sell to be able to get, to, 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 to get on the boat. The English journalist Joseph Kay was appalled to learn that their homes were simply destroyed when they were evicted. If they do not pay their rent at the proper time, they are liable to be turned adrift, even in the middle of the night, into the bleak road without a shelter, and with their helpless wives and children, no notice is necessary, 
no notice is given. These classes of men, women and children in the lower reaches of the class pyramid, the labourers and the courtiers, bore the very worst consequences of the famine. It is they who are, in statistical terms, most likely to be found amongst the more than one million who died. If some were lucky enough to be assisted, such as the 200,000 children helped by Pavel Strasleki, they are among the two million who might have subsequently emigrated to destinations like Britain, North America and Australia. There are, of course, countless others who, without the resources to emigrate, gathered in the large towns and cities for between 1844 and the 1850s. Many, <coughs> including pregnant women, took the, the roads to survive. The 1851 census records only 135,000 habitations described as Bohan. Testament not to any program of assistance, but to the obliteration and destruction of any record that these families had ever lived their lives on the land. Uh, between 1851 and 1860, five of the seven members of my grandfather's family immigrated to Australia. The Great Famine on Gothamore, though not the sole foundation event in the formation of the Irish diaspora, for after all over a million Irish people had emigrated to North America between 1815 and 1845, must yet still be considered the most important the, the famine must still be considered the most important event in the formation of a distinct Irish American cultural identity. And there is no one distinct Irish American cultural identity. For anybody who wants to look at it very seriously will know that those who emigrated between 1815 and 1845 had a particular attitude too towards the great wave which would flow over them in the 1840s and 1850s. And again, those who had come through Canada, they are entitled, as they have to have, brought particular, I think Garrod O'Tuhik, my colleague from so many pieces of work, has described them. Many of them were Protestant and prudent. They were able to pay their passage, that 1815 to 45 cohort. Some 2.1 million people left this island in the decade between 1846 and 1855. Over 2 million people, more than had left in the previous two and a half centuries combined. And one and a half million of them settled in the United States, even if it was to Canada that many would have that had been their first point of disembarkation. Their migration made a legacy that had been foretold with great apprehension by indeed those that I had referred to that perhaps the famine was an act of God to punish the Irish. In 1860, the Times of London has been quoted had the following to say, if this goes on as it is likely to go on, the United States will become very Irish. So in Ireland there will still be, but on a colossal scale and in a new world, we shall only have pushed the Celt westwards, then no longer cooped between the Liffey and the Shannon. He will spread from New York to San Francisco and keep up the ancient feud at an unforeseen advantage. We must gird our lions to encounter the nemesis of seven centuries' misgovernment. To the end of time, a hundred million spread over the largest habitable area in the world and confronting us everywhere by sea and land will remember that their forefathers paid tithe to the Protestant clergy, rent to the absentee landlords and a forced obedience to the laws which these had made. Harsh comments from the London Times with some fear. 
Indeed, this article was prescient because by 1901, more people born on the island of Ireland were living outside the island of Ireland than living within it. They, the Irish abroad, would then play a crucial role in the cultural revival and the preparations for independence, both parliamentary and military. I am struck by the parallel Polish experience of emigration, in particular to the United States. In the period from the early 1800s to the beginning of World War II, records indicate that approximately 5 million Polish emigrated to the United States. These Polish families fled their country for various reasons. Some left to escape conscription, others left to seek better opportunities in the United States, and some fled from religious persecution. And I do say it is something important that countries that share the experience of migration have a great deal in common. The Ireland of the late 1840s had not experienced the impact of the public health reforms that had been championed by Edwin Chadwick. Sanitation and water supplies were compromised, leading to a huge incidence of diseases such as typhus, yellow fever and cholera. And indeed, some of those who came to the assistance of the Irish would themselves die from these. In his testament to a House of Lords committee in 1847, Father Theopold Macho, whose statue adorns Cork St. Patrick Street now, described his efforts to bury the dead. Each day there was a large pit dug, and all that died that day were put down. The pit was covered up. I had four men employed. Some days there were 60 or 70 a day buried, and some days more. Accounts such as this, which lay bare what I have written elsewhere as, as the averted gaze, demonstrate an absence of, as Father Matthews suggested, solidarity and empathy for human suffering. And this should give us grounds for reflection in thinking about contemporary starvations and famines. We also have to place on record an, an account of the visit of Queen Victoria to Coven Cork in the midst of jubilant crowds of prosperous citizens Whilst unseen to the visiting monarch, those whom contemporaries termed shadows and spectres, ghostly skeletons and phantoms wandered the streets of the city. Father Matthew issued a statement that is so much to his credit and to his obvious anger, criticising the Cock Council for having beggars routinely rounded up every night. As he said, under the authority of an act of parliament, they take up sturdy beggars and vagrants, they confine them at night in a marketplace, and the next morning send them out in a cart five miles from the town, and there they are left, and a great part of them perish, for they have no homes to go to. There are lessons that can be drawn from the obvious crisis and destitution of the people and indifference to it. Only a pernicious and dangerous economic orthodoxy could morally sanction poverty amidst plenty, conspicuous consumption amidst mass death, an ideology that elevated the right of property above any version of natural law, even while it relegated the duty of humanity and of solidarity to the arena of charity. Were it not for those like Power Strzelecki, the numbers who died of starvation would, of course, have been even higher. In February 1847, Sertlecki reached Westport and he wrote, No pen can describe the distress by which I am surrounded. His testimony, 
broke a silence as it was published by several British newspapers and helped to illuminate the plight of suffering in Ireland and he would seek to raise further funds for his tour in Great Britain. Despite this, the British government, which had sanctioned the withdrawal of government support in the midst of Black 47, also as scholars, Amata Sen and Mike Davis have reminded us, attempted to rationalise the monumental catastrophe suffered in the same manner as those done to the Indian people and the inaction of the British Raj during the Indian famines of 1876-1878 and later 1896-1897 and 1899-1900. Despite the British government cutting state-backed famine relief in 1847, Thresleki remained in Ireland, assisting poor families, knowing, as, I was, as explained to me when I was being shown the exhibition, that worse was yet to come after 1847. And in 18, until he stayed in 1849, even though he himself was suffering from the effects of typhoid fever contacted in Ireland. Sreslecki also helped impoverished Irish families to seek new lives in Australia, where he had been an, an explorer and who, as an anthropologist, as it were, interested in the lives of the Aboriginal people in his years prior to arriving in Ireland. During his three years in Ireland, he never sought any remuneration for his work, saying back in London that he could not believe how it could be suggested to him that he would take a remuneration for the work that he had come, that he had been, in which he had been involved. His commitment, widely recognised and prayed by his contemporaries, and thus, it was somewhat late that in May 2015, a plaque honouring Sreslecki's efforts was unveiled by Lord Mayor Christie Burke and the Mayor of Poznan. Mr. Jasiewicz can, can be found on Sackville Place in the heart of Dublin city centre. This exhibition this evening, to which I have had the honour of being asked to open, I wish it so well, for it rightly endeavours to bring the achievements of this extraordinary man of great heart and humanitarian instinct and his legacy more widely into the public eye. And I do share our colleagues in the Polish Embassy's wish that it be visited by as many people as possible and that it travel not only to increase our sensitivity to the importance of the singular action of a humanitarian person at a time of crisis, which will be evident to the whole world. How should we now reckon with the famine? I conclude by suggesting that we do so with new and deeper and more compassionate and tolerant histories, new intellectual work to inform policy, and particularly to inform the connection between economics and ethics and people and ecology. An approach that does not eschew moral purpose, that does not accept bogus inevitabilities, that tests assumptions, is dedicated to telling the story of the people. And let us do so through a renewed commitment to solidarity together in a spirit of hope and a generous welcome to all models of possibility towards our new responsibilities with all those who still now suffer as our ancestors at home and overseas once did. May I once again thank the Polish Embassy in Ireland for coordinating the exhibition, which I understand is a flagship initiative dating back 2016 when the then ambassador advocated the idea to commemorate the work of Paul Stasleki in Ireland. 
It is a hugely significant contribution to the alleviation of suffering and death that he made during this our darkest time in recent Irish history. On behalf of the people of Ireland, Maruktaran Ahenis Asan Winter Neherin, Gambuikis, Leshen Polen, Asan Servisha Hakshe, Do Arm Winter, Akahoirehe, Kost Winter Neherin, and Ishtiag. I so wish, as President of Ireland, to thank Poland for Paul Strasleki's service to our nation and particularly to its most vulnerable and weakest members at one of the harshest periods of our history. And I wish the exhibition every success. Many thanks. <laughs> <laughs>